Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 10 of the podcast, in which we will discuss chapter 8 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled What Happened After Dinner. And you'll remember that in the previous chapter, the four Pevensey children follow a robin, and the robin's leading to meet Mr. Beaver, who brings them back to his house uh, to comfort them. We have this great image of hospitality and warmth and good cheer as they uh, feast with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and enjoy all of the wonderful uh, community there that they are offered in this warm, um, beautiful home in this uh, this hearth environment that Lewis creates. It's the similar sort of thing we saw at the beginning with Lucy and Tumnus. And then here in chapter eight, dinner is over. And the opening question from Lucy is the question of what has happened to Mr. Tumnus, which we know uh, from previous chapters that uh, his home has been ransacked by the White Witch and her secret police. And uh, we are unclear on what has happened to Tumnus. We have the handkerchief, of course. And so Lucy investigates what has happened to Tumnus. And Mr. Beaver uh, brings the news that um, if he has been captured by the White Witch and taken to her house, to her castle, then it is likely that he has been turned to stone. And this is one of the first indications we have of this power of the white witches. And um, we experience this mystery along with the children. We don't know uh, on our first reading here what has happened to Tumnus. We are not quite clear on what is unfolding there. And the way in which Mr. Beaver explains the white witch's power here of turning others to stone is quite striking. He says, I'm afraid it means they were taking him to her house, he said. And Lucy responds, but what will they do to him, Mr. Beaver? Mr. Beaver says, well, you can't exactly say for sure, but there's not many taken in there that ever comes out again. Statues, all full of statues, they say it is, in the courtyard and up the stairs and in the hall. People she's turned, he paused and shuddered, turned into stone. Now, just grammatically in this uh, paragraph, there are two really interesting choices that Lewis has made syntactically. The first one is that when he indicates that people get turned to stone, they are turned into statues, he uses a, he uses a fragment to do it. He says, there's not many taken in there that ever comes out again. Statues. And that adds a sense of weight and devastation to the reality of what she does to people. She turns creatures, she turns beings, and possibly even humans, now that there are humans in Narnia, into statues. And this uh, is a problem that we've seen already just with the nature of being a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, the nature of having a soul, the nature of being a sentient creature is that uh, your animus, your spirit, your soul matters, especially if you are human. Living creatures are made to live and breathe and move, and uh, they are noble in a way. But sons of Adam and daughters of, daughters of Eve are even more noble. They're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so the idea of robbing a creature of their soul, of their animus, robbing them of their life, is uh, one of the most profound violations of that spirit that you can do. And obviously the white witch is pure evil. She's unconcerned with uh, the lives of others. She's seeking merely to dominate and turning creatures into stone is one way of doing that. But the prospect of robbing 
a human, the prospect of robbing a, a creature who has a spirit and a personality of that soul by turning them to stone is a very telling symbol that you are able to demean them or flatten them into a mere object or a mere uh, image of uh, this this uh, inanimate object where there once was an animate creature. It seems to strike at the very image of God itself that is placed in us. So he says, statues, all full of statues, they say it is, in the courtyard and up the stairs and in the hall, people she's turned, and then this is the second choice Lewis uses where he indicates that Mr. Beaver pauses and shudders in the telling of this detail as though the mere weight of it is uh, devastating, which we already know, um, turning a, a human or an animal or a creature into stone forever, uh, not killing them outright, not butchering them, but stalling them, uh, making them stagnant, making them sterile and hollow and inanimate is a worse fate, that they are still technically alive, but just paralyzed, fragmented, and stalled. But the second point here where he says, people she's turned, and he pauses and shudders, and then he says, turned into stone. That reality is one that we need to let sink in. Uh, this goes into what Lewis talks about in his work, The Abolition of Man, where he details the prospect of having men without chests. That's the phrase he uses for it, men without chests. And in that book, The Abolition of Man, he is critiquing the project of modern education that tries to uh, grow human beings, tries to inculcate and to disciple and raise human beings that have no heart, have no chest, they have no soul. They are not intact creatures. They are merely an intellect or merely a, a gut instinctual appetite. There's no romanticism, there's no heart, there's no spirit that's being trained. You're merely training a creature, a man, with, a man without a chest. This idea of being turned to stone is one that uh, reduces what it means to be a person to a mere physical reality, that you are merely uh, a Ziploc bag of bones and blood. You are not made in the image of anything. You are merely a human beast. You are evolved. You are... Um, a statue, merely, no, no breath of life. And remember, in the Garden of Eden, God had fashioned man out of dust, but that man was not animate. That man was not alive until the breath of God breathes on him. Prior to that, he's merely this dirt statue. He's merely this, this figure of clay. And so in the chapters to come, when Aslan moves around and breathes onto the statues in the White Witch's courtyard to make them alive again, we get this beautiful dual image. The first image goes back to the garden where the breath of God is breathed into the nostrils of Adam and makes him a living being. But then also this image of what the Holy Spirit does, the wind, the breath of God, the pneuma is the Greek word, uh, the spirit of God, the breath and the wind of God that raises the dead to life, that, that Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and only the Spirit of God is able to resurrect the dead. And so when Aslan breathes on these stone statues to awaken them from their slumber, it's a glorious image of salvation, of resurrection, and as an opposition against what the White Witches Project is, which is to merely create chess pieces to create statues that she can dominate over and decorate her decorate her palace with. 
Uh, a second image here too is the contrast we get of the White Witch's place, which um, Mr. Beaver says is detailed with all of these stone statues. It is not the merry world of the medieval castle, which C.S. Lewis loved. Uh, this sense of merry uh, courtiers and nobles, this medieval vision of order and harmony and beauty. Uh, the White Witch's place seems to be the opposite of that, where you just have tyranny, this top-down uh, throaty rule and uh, domineering over creatures who are helpless, who are unable to contest her power. When you are a stone statue, you are unable to voice any sort of opposition. You are helpless. Um, and I, I want to move sideways as well, just briefly, because um, T.S. Eliot, who was uh, a Nobel Prize winning poet who lived, who was a contemporary of Lewis's, has two different images that I think comment well on what Lewis is doing here with the White Witch and her sterile, uh, wintry land of Narnia, where it's always winter and never Christmas. Remember, she has no children herself, and her palace now, as Mr. Beaver has described it, is cold brutal, domineering. And the first image is what Eliot uh, constructs in the poem he wrote called uh, The Hollow Men, where the idea of a man or a woman who has been neutered of his or her significance eternally, neutered of transcendent meaning or value, robbed of their uh, divine uh, making that they were created. What do you have if you do not have that? You have a hollow man. And he, in that poem, details um, the condition of modern man that has no soul and no heart, no, no moral purpose, no eternal destiny or anything like that. You're merely a creature. Um, I say creature quite wrongly. You're not created at all. You're a product of blind natural selection over time. Uh, then what you have is hollow men, no heart, no spirit, no soul. And this image of stone statues, I think, is redolent of that image that Eliot has constructed. But also another Eliot image that I think is fitting is that of his poem titled The Wasteland, where uh, this is the moral landscape that Eliot saw at the beginning of the 20th century was this human wasteland where nothing can grow. Um, there, are, there are nothing but dry roots. There's nothing but bare rock. There is nothing but uh, mere repetitions of cycles and time as man merely lives out his days in an Ecclesiastes kind of life where there's uh, vanity of vanities, there's nothing but chasing the wind. Here in the White Witch's Narnia, we have the same sort of wasteland where she is not only sterile and cold and hollow herself, but everything that she touches turns to stone and snow, that she is incapable of fruition, incapable of growth, incapable of warmth. And so when all of the talk of spring coming and Aslan being on the move arrives, then we get this clear contrast between the agenda of Satan, the agenda of darkness, which is one of emptiness, sterility, blankness, coldness, we get the fitting contrast with Aslan, which is that of breath and fierceness and wildness and warmth and spring. Uh, so the children continue to ask Mr. Beaver what can be done about Tumnus. Peter uh, dives in and asks if there's anything he can do. And Mr. Beaver says, it's no good, son of Adam, 
said Mr. Beaver. No good you're trying, of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move, this is important. Mr. Beaver says there's nothing you can do, not in of yourself. Now, we know at the end of the book that there's a great deal that Peter and Susan and even Edmund at that point and Lucy do. They're given gifts by Father Christmas with which they are meant to fight evil with good. That There is a lot they will do, but there is no good Peter's trying apart from Aslan. This is an important sequence for Mr. Beaver. There's no good you're trying of all people, Peter. Not yet. Not in this way. Not in this impetuous, impulsive way to try to take action apart from Aslan. Mr. Beaver's right. Now that Aslan is on the move, there is something that can be done. And this is the second time Mr. Beaver has said this, that Aslan is on the move. In the last chapter when he said that, we talked about this feeling and this experience of the numinous that all of the children uh, experience as a response to hearing the name of Aslan. That same thing is about to happen again here where the children say, oh yes, tell us about Aslan. Mr. Beaver says, now that Aslan's on the move, the children say, yes, tell us about Aslan said several voices at once, for once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. And notice how Lewis describes this. He says the, the feeling of Aslan's name is a strange feeling. This is like what uh, Lewis's, one of Lewis's favorite books, The Idea of the Holy, written by a man named Rudolf Otto, uh, gets at. This idea of holiness, sacredness, beauty, is awesome, strange, powerful, transcendent. And that feeling arrives again at hearing their name. And we get two descriptions, two similes here from Lewis. The first is it arrives on them. They hear the the name of Aslan and experience this feeling like the first signs of spring, which is such a resurrection image that Aslan's name comes with this feeling of spring and of newness and of life after wintry death. And then the second simile is much more straightforward. Lewis says that strange feeling like good news, which is the literal translation of the word gospel, that the name of Aslan has the weight of good news, this numinous, beautiful, transcendent weight of good news. This is the gospel, and this is resurrection language of spring tied into the name of Aslan. And Susan comes in and says, who is Aslan? That's the question. And that is the central narrative of all seven books. Who is this Aslan? This name that we've heard of. Mr. Beaver says, why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen, all right. It is he, not you, who will save Mr. Tumnus. What a beautiful statement of salvation and sovereignty. Aslan is the king. He is the lord of the whole wood. He is in charge. He is the king of it all. And what a great image for the, Aslan as a Christ figure. Christ is the king. Don't you know? He's the Lord of the whole wood, without question. And it is he who will save Tumnus, not you. Salvation belongs to no other than Aslan. He is the one who is powerful and effective. He is the one who is able to raise the dead to life. He is the one who's going to be able to save Tumnus, who's going to be able to save ultimately Edmund, as we'll see in coming chapters. And as is said in the last battle, 
by King Tyrion that Aslan's death saved all of Narnia. Uh, that this is the way forward, that only through Aslan can anything good come. Edmund says, uh, will the White Witch turn Aslan into stone? And incidentally, this is the last thing Edmund says. It's at this point that he will quietly sneak out and treasonous as he is, move over to the White Witch's place to rat out his siblings. And Mr. Beaver says, what a simple thing to say. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it will be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights, as it is said, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Now, this is really important. This is the moment where Mr. Beaver recites the prophecy, he'll do it twice, that pertains to the four children. And this prophecy we've, we've heard coming a long way. Tumnus referenced it a bit with Lucy. Mr. Beaver has referenced it a bit. Uh, now he's going to quote it outright. And notice the importance of memorizing and remembering the old rhymes. This is important that we teach our children the old stories, that we constantly tell them over and over again, talk about it when we rise, when we go about our day, that we must constantly instruct our children on these old rhymes, these old stories, these prophecies of the Christian faith, that Christ is king, that these stories are true, and we constantly need to remember them. And it is something that will return again in the silver chair when Lewis has Jill being tasked, Aslan tasks Jill to memorize and recite the four signs over and over again that will guide her and direct her in her quest to find Prince Rillian. Lewis is emphasizing the importance of hiding the word in your heart, remembering the old rhymes, quoting them at the right time, putting your trust in them, believing in them that they will come to pass. And the rhyme is this. He tells the children, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And that prophecy is loaded with so much power, and so much truth. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. This reminds me of uh, another line from Eliot, T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets, where he says, All shall be well and all manner of thing will be well. That this is the end game. This is the, the purpose and point of all human life is that all will be well. God is writing a cosmic story with Christ as the hero and it is finished. All will be well. He wins. Story always wins. And it reminds me too of Tolkien where uh, the, the famous phrase that everything sad is coming untrue. That uh, this sorrow, this winter will not last forever. And Mr. Beaver says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. Sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And then he wraps it up by saying, you'll understand when you see him. Which is another great point about Aslan and about Jesus. This is John 1, where Jesus tells his, tells his disciples to come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. You'll understand when you see him. All will be right when you are faced with the face of God. All will be well. Everything sad will come untrue. Um, they question, is Aslan a man? Is this a man? And there's, they're told, no, he's a lion. He is the lion, the great lion. And then we get one of the best phrases in the entire book. Lucy says, then is he, he isn't safe? Or they hear that 
Aslan is this wild, great lion. Is he quite safe? He isn't safe. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan is not safe. He is not a tame lion. Uh, th that is a phrase that appears um, throughout the Chronicles, that he is not a tame lion. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And what a distinction that needs to be made about Aslan, certainly, but about Christ as well. Christ is not safe. If you want a safe life, stay away from Jesus. Jesus will demand high adventures, long roads, brave courage. Uh, he will require much of us. To, to, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. This is not a road for the faint of heart. This is a high and noble quest to follow Jesus, to come and see. Of course, he's not safe, but he's good. He is the wild king, but he is a good king. He is the prodigal father sprinting out of his home to meet his son with kisses. He is the impolite, untamable. Uh, unconstrainable king of all kings. Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Peter's response is important. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. This refers back to the, the idea of the numinous. I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Right? Fear and trembling mixed with awe and wonder. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. This is so important that Peter is filled with this sense of longing, which Lewis, Lewis's entire life, if you read Surprised by Joy, Lewis's entire life was marked by this sense of, of ache and longing and desire for the transcendent, for the what he called northernness, the sense of the far distant holiness and beauty of God um, that he was drawn into throughout his life. And now Peter says he's filled with longing and desire. I want to meet this wild king. I want to know him. And that is a proper response to all of us when we hear of Jesus. Are we Edmund quietly sulking and sneaking away from the room at the name of Aslan? Or are we Peter and Lucy and Susan who are drawn into the story and are filled with longing to see him and to meet him? Mr. Beaver says that he will take them to Aslan. He cites another prophecy, another of the old rhymes. He says, when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at care Paravel in throne, the evil time will be over and done. This is what the white witch has been so concerned with, with Edmund in the earlier chapter with Turkish delight. And when she discovers there are four, two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve, she wants to thwart the prophecy. She wants to disrupt this destiny. Because once they sit at Care Paravel and Throne, the evil time will be over and done. The White Witch will lose her power. And so she's going to try everything she can to stop it. And interestingly, interestingly enough, this prophecy ties in to something that occurred at the very creation of Narnia that Lewis details in The Magician's Nephew. Uh, so let me just pull us back to that moment. It's a moment that will come in a later book. Lewis wrote The Magician's Nephew later in the series, but it is the story of the founding and the creation of Narnia. Diggory Kirk, who as a, it was a boy at the time, 
at, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he is the old professor. But when he is a boy, he is drawn into Narnia. Um, at its very founding, he sees it sung into creation by Aslan himself. And he awakens on a, in a different world in Charn. He awakens Jadis from her slumber, and she ends up being the white witch who is uh, uh, governing and, and destroying and ruling over uh, Narnia. And he awakens her um, foolishly. He is tempted to awaken her, and he does, and which causes all sorts of havoc when she enters Narnia. And Aslan presses Diggory on this and moves him toward confession that it is what he has done. And Lewis says this, this is in The Magician's Nephew. There was a long pause and Diggory was thinking all the time, I've spoiled everything. There's no chance of getting anything from mother now. Right? Diggory thinks that he's ruined everything by awakening Jadis. And in many ways he has. He's brought sin and death into Narnia, what was a perfect Edenic world. But then watch Aslan's response. When the lion spoke again, it was not to Diggory. He speaks to everyone. Here's Aslan. You see, friends, he said, that before the new clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, waked and brought hither by this son of Adam. The beasts, even Strawberry, all turned their eyes on Diggory till he felt that he wished the ground would swallow him up. But do not be cast down, said Aslan, still speaking to the beasts. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. In the meantime, let us take such order that for many hundred years yet, this shall be a merry land in a merry world. And as Adam's race has done the harm, Adam's race shall help to heal it. So notice several things Aslan says there. He says, uh, evil has been brought in this world, but do not be cast down. Do not be sad for long. Take heart. He says the evil, evil will come of that, which we know, right? The white witch is here. All these many years later, after this moment in The Magician's Nephew, the white witch is ruling over the land. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off. And Aslan says, I will see to it that the worst falls upon me. I will see to it that good will overcome evil. So take heart. All will be well. I will see to it. And so now that Aslan is on the move, he's in Narnia. He's, he's arriving. Spring is coming. That this atonement, this victory is nigh. It's coming. And it was prophesied all those many years ago in The Magician's Nephew when the White Witch was first brought into the world by Diggory. He says, in the meantime, let us make this a merry land and a merry world. And that's, that's our task. Let us make this a merry land and a merry world while we may. Aslan is on the move. He will right all the wrong. He will, uh, he will take the throne. He will enact the victory. So let us make this a merry land and a merry world in preparation for that. And then the final thing he says, as Adam's race has done the harm, which it has, Diggory sinned, Diggory brought her in, Adam's race shall help to heal it. Which takes us all the way back to the line, the witch in the wardrobe with the prophecy. That it's when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Care Paravel and throne. That Adam's race will be involved in the victory. But also biblically, we know this to be true. John, uh, uh, John 1, the word will be made flesh. Right? God will be incarnate. God will take on human flesh in order to achieve the victory. That it was Adam's sin that caused the fall. It's got to be a second Adam 
to make it right. The first Adam disobeyed at a tree and brought curse. The second Adam will obey at a tree and bring redemption and healing. Christ will go to the cross to undo what we did back in the garden. After this prophecy, there is some background on uh, the white witch that uh, we won't go too far into. It's quite interesting, the statement referencing Lilith and the jinn and so on. But then they discover that Edmund has sneaked away, that he is treasonous. There's a traitor in their midst. And um, there's an interesting statement made toward the end of the chapter uh, where Mr. Beaver says, the moment I set eyes on that brother of yours, I said to myself, treacherous. He had the look of one who has been with the witch and eaten her food. You can always tell them if you've lived long in Narnia, something about their eyes, which goes back to the Turkish delight moment. Edmund has been ensnared. He's been tricked and enchanted by evil. But it also brings up this point of reflecting what you behold. That I'm fond of saying that you reflect what you behold, that what you are looking at, where you are setting your gaze and your orientation tells on your face, that you can, it tells on your face and on your demeanor and your life what you are oriented toward. And Edmund is looking at the white witch, serving the white witch, so it reads. He is a cynical creature. He is a pessimistic creature. He's a traitor. He's Judas in the midst of the Last Supper. And how quickly we forget after hearing of Edmund's treason and his betrayal and his flight to the White Witch's palace, Lucy says, oh, can no one help us? And Mr. Beaver says two words, only Aslan. Is there anything that that can be done? Yes, my child, I just told you. Aslan is on the move. Only Aslan. In the final statement in the chapter, Mr. Beaver said, Mrs. Beaver says there's not a moment to lose. So that concludes chapter eight. Thank you for listening. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.